It's time for episode three of King of the Cast, the pro wrestling podcast about pro wrestling by pro wrestling fans. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at King of the Cast and vote in our polls because you get to decide who is crowned episode three's King of the Cast. In our last episode, we argued about who was the greatest, what? What do we argue about, guys? Angle. Angle, that's right. We had yes, the greatest angle. angle. And Greg taught us what an angle was as well, which was pretty awesome. And we learned that an angle is part of a storyline, correct, Mr. Greg? That's right. And, uh, and, and that was something that either started it or made a big turn in it or finished it. And all of us had some great ideas. And uh, we threw those up on the internet and uh, had some people vote for it. And thanks to some of our listeners for uh, chiming in on those. And after all it was tallied, we, uh, we crowned our new king of the cast after episode two. And that's Mr. Kevin Marshall. Who unfortunately between then and now has lost a Losers Leave Town match and cannot be with us uh, this month. But um, hopefully, as we change territories here in the future, Only he'll 30 days. 30 days? Just a, That's just a 30, 30 day, day loser. 30, 30 day, day stipulation. Okay. <laughs> he'll show back up, uh, I don't know, maybe in a mask or with a different name. Him. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but we, uh, our panel today uh, will consist of uh, Mr. Greg again, myself. Uh, Rick, uh, Jay, and uh, Mr. Jason, and we're all going to be here today arguing a new topic that Kevin did get to pick because he is our uh, reigning king of the cast. So before um, he disappeared, he, uh, he left us with the task of arguing the best manager, uh, which is an exciting one because throughout our last couple podcasts, we've talked about managers kind of along the way. Um, and it mentioned that how managers had a big impacts on different uh, tag teams, like, for instance, Paul Ellering in the LOD when I argued that, or, or other ones along Jim Cornette uh, with the Midnight Express, or how we associate them with certain people. Um, and what's been exciting for me as, we, as Kevin gave us this topic was to go back and look at all the different people some people have managed. Mm-hmm. It's been kind of cool, too. As well as like, we associate them with maybe a certain character, but then, um, or a certain wrestler, but then how they have managed so many different people along the way. Um, I jokingly said uh, to my wife, uh, when I research these things, I start to realize how much I've forgotten instead of how much I remember. Um, I, uh, in last episode, I was amazed when Jason knew a date like off the top of his head, and I, I, I can't do that. But I, one thing I, I tend to be able to do is recall things that I've seen on TV, and of course, most of the wrestling happens on TV for me. So uh, I can recall those things fairly specifically. But when I go back and do these research for these things, it's always cool to see all the stuff I've forgotten, which is a little scary at times but uh, um, <laughs> to me, but, uh, but also pretty exciting to kind of reminisce and go back. So... We're going to get straight into the topic today and uh, talk about the managers that we've chosen who are the best. Hopefully, you'll, if you're out there listening, you'll uh, chime in. P- feel free to go get on Facebook and Twitter at King of the Cast and uh, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear your uh, opinion. We'd love to hear uh, who you think is best. And please vote in our polls as well so we can crown our next King of the Cast um, in our, for our next episode. So we're going to start off today, and uh, Jason is uh, going to, uh, or Jay, sorry, we've got so many Jasons here, it gets a little confusing sometimes, but, but Jay's going to start off today and tell us who he thinks the best manager in professional wrestling has ever been. Well, thank you, Rick. I greatly appreciate that introduction. Before I tell you who I, who I chose, one thing that I really enjoy you know, about managers is the fact that you know, they can be used in so many different ways to get, to get the wrestling talent over 
uh, on the crowd, whether it be a heel turn or just for them to be a straight up heel or for them to get involved in a, in a match, you know, that allows, you know, the storylines or the talent to get over with the crowd, even if it's someone who maybe is a huge, huge athletic specimen or something, you know, that, that looks great in the ring, but maybe he can't talk. Give them a manager, let them be their mouthpiece, and let and let them roll through all the sayings and all of the dialogue in order for them to really get over and let let the talent be the talent in the, in the ring and let the managers be their mouthpiece. And that's that's what I really love about the role of manager. Now, on to on to my choice, and mine is probably one of, if not the most popular manager uh, from what I consider the glory days, you know, of wrestling, you know, and, and that would be none other than Bobby the Brain Heenan. Now, what I love about Bobby the Brain Heenan, I remember, you know, watching WWF, you know, now WWE at, at the time, and he had all the bad guys, and he, he actively recruited all of his guys. I mean, if it was someone who was into a big uh, storyline, he would go and recruit them to come over. Hey, come be a part of the Heenan family. Let me help you become, you know, this great talent on the roster. And that, that's what that's what I love. I'm going to give you give some history on uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan um, before we really get into who all he managed and, and everything. Um, he started off um, in uh, in 1961 uh, in the Indianapolis-based WWA wrestling, and he was actually at that time he came out as Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan, and that was his that was his first name uh, that he came out with, and he actually managed and wrestled, so he 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 did both, you know, did because as part of his managing duties, he would get involved with the matches as most managers do, and they saw how well he took bumps and how well he actually worked in the ring. They said, hey, we're gonna have you do both. Because he, because he, he he was really good at it, um, so with him being booked um, as both uh, some of the guys that he managed in the WWE at the time, and I was kind of uh, surprised at some of the names that came up. One of them that he managed up in Indianapolis was Angelo Poffo, who all of us here in in Lexington really know because he he of course father of Randy Savage and Leaping Lanny Poffo. You know, so I mean he's he's really a well known name around this area. And so he, he managed Angelo as well as uh, Chris Markoff, uh, the Assassins, who were Guy Mitchell and uh, Joe Tommaso at the time, um, the Valiant Brothers, and the Blackjacks up in, up in Indianapolis. So he, um, he was there uh, from 1961 to 1974. Then, he, um, during that time, he also made a switch over to, a different, to the different territory in 1969. So he, he carried over. Uh, to get uh, two territories at the time, he went over to AWA. Now, I I, did, I didn't realize you know how much he had done in AWA, but he actually was uh, he 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 was managing uh, Nick Bockwinkle and uh, Ray the Crippler Stevens, and so he managed them to the AWA Tag Team uh, Championships at the time, and uh, they were actually uh, going against uh, the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser. Now, it's kind of interesting. With with Bobby Heenan, as he was known for all of his, you know, basically witty uh, sayings and comedic timing and everything, when with, with the way that he acted, Dick the Bruiser actually was the one that gave him the nickname Weasel. He actually started calling him the Weasel, 
And, uh, and so it, it caught on, and of course everyone started chanting Weasel and, and everything. And uh, later on, he would go on to have a match with Greg Gagne, and it was actually a Weasel match to where, <laughs> to where the, the loser would get put into a Weasel costume. And of course, Bobby the, Bobby the Brain Heenan at this time, when he went over to AWA, he did switch his name over from Pretty Boy over to Bobby the Brain because he announced I was going to be known as Bobby the Brain Heenan and so we, he, had, he lost of course and got put into the Weasel costume and that just kind of you know amped up the whole Weasel gimmick at, at that time um, while he was at, at AWA he actually it was actually um, written in that he got a one year suspension and so in 1979 he went over from AWA over to Georgia Championship Wrestling, and it was kind of interesting that uh, he actually was with the with promoter Ole Anderson, and he thought that he had an agreement with Ole that he could have basically a lifetime contract with Georgia, that he could basically do whatever he wanted to, work there as long as he wanted to, and Ole was like, no, that's not our agreement, and so he only lasted really one year with, with Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, down there before he went back to AWA, uh, you know, within that within that one year. But when he went back to AWA, um, it, they were touring Japan, and he um, that's when he suffered a neck injury, and so that kind of basically quit all his in ring time, and he became strictly a manager, and that was in 1979. So, uh, so you know, it, that that's one thing that I liked about Bobby is the fact that he had the in ring experience to go along with his managing and his wittiness on the mic uh, along with that. Um, 1984 is when he goes over to, to WWF and this is really where probably most people know him. He was he was there for a very long time. You know, He was only a manager though from 84 to 93 before he retired and went into the announcing booth. And a lot of people uh, nowadays, we'll really know Bobby the Brain Heenan from his announcing. But while he was at WWF, you know, he—that's when he came up with the Heenan family and got you know one of the largest stables going at, at the time. Um, just to you know tell you, you know, some people that he that he did manage it while he was at WWF. Um, he, he started off well. Let me let me preface, preface that when he went over to WWF in 1984. His intention was actually he was going to be the manager for Jesse the Body Ventura. And so that was going to be his, his main client. Well, come to find out, Jesse Ventura had to retire due to blood clots in his lungs. So that kind of messed up the whole plan uh, for, for Heenan. But instead, he went, he, he went, he went ahead and went into WWF, and his first client was actually Big John Studd. And, of course, Big John Studd's big, big thing was going against Andre Andre the Giant, and of course, one of the first storylines that he went into was the whole uh, $15,000 body slam match with Andre the Giant, which of course, Andre won, won $15,000, and then started spreading the money out to all the fans, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, then, and then Bobby Heenan grabbed the bag of money because he was like, no, 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 don't take my money, no, no. <laughs> you know, so that, all, all that kind of fun stuff, but some of the guys that, that, that he managed, of course, was Big John Studd, um, Olympic Strongman Ken Patera, uh, Playboy Buddy Rose, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, um, High Chief uh, Savi Afai. Um, he, of course, 
uh, 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 um, the, he, he managed the Brain Busters, of course, which were Art Anderson and Tully Blanchard, formerly of the Four Horsemen, uh, Mr. Perfect, um, <laughs> of course, the Red Rooster. <laughs> I don't know if we, we want to even have that on it, but uh, and then and then and then one <laughs> suicide exactly, and then and then surprisingly one of the one of what which I call probably one of the best jobbers he was actually a manager for the Brooklyn Brawler, <laughs> and so yeah so he he had them but probably the two that he's most known for that I didn't mention in there were early on in WrestleManias he was the managers for. The main events in both WrestleMania 2 and WrestleMania 3. Mm-hmm. WrestleMania 2 being the cage match between Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. Mm-hmm. He was manager for King Kong Bundy. And then again in WrestleMania 3, we interject as we, uh, if you listen to episode 2 about our angles when we talk about Andre the Giant, he was manager for Andre and really kind of helped he and fuel that, that, that feud between. Hogan and Andre, and you know that's one thing that with with managers, you know, with them being the mouthpiece, they can actually add fuel to that fire to keep those feuds going and keeping them and keeping them repeating and and really going on those. Um, so that, that that's that's with uh, with Bobby Brahim, you know, giving you some background on that um, and and everything. But he, you know, after he uh, retired from uh, from wrestling. You know, in from managing in '93, he went on to um, to be a commentator for WWF uh, along with Gorilla Monsoon, and people even commented and said, you know, they were kind of a Abbott and Costello type of comedic timing with each other and stuff because they were they were really good friends, even though a lot of times they were just ripping each other, you know, back and forth on that. But uh, but it, it, he he was a great commentator, great manager, and one of the things that you know as a manager that he was kind of ripped for uh, for a long time was the fact that he was considered one of the best managers to never win a championship. None of his guys could, you know, really ever held a title. And so, you know, but th- th- that streak did end up, up uh, breaking, surprisingly, with Ravishing Rick Rude at WrestleMania five when he, when, when Ravishing Rick Rude upset the Ultimate Warrior for the Inter- Intercontinental Championship. So, that that, that 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 kind of you know, grill monsoon and a lot of the guys had really ripped him saying, "Oh, you're a manager that manages a, a bunch of great guys, but you can't win. A, you guys can't win a title. So how good can you be?" And then you know he comes up and Ravishing Rick Rude kind of kind of beats that. And so, um, you know that that that's you know everyone knows by the brain. He of course later on he ended up um, losing his his uh, fight with complications due to throat cancer. Really kind of you know put a hindrance on him, and he. Uh, he did retire in uh, from announcing in 2001. He would end up. Uh, uh, his last one was uh, WrestleMania X7, so 17. Um, that was his uh, last uh, official appearance. He would go on and um, and would make appearances every once in a while from all the way throughout until until he until he passed away. But uh, that's why I I gotta say that you know by the right hand you know for what he did. Uh, as a manager role for, you know, keeping feuds going, being the mouthpiece for guys that couldn't talk and things, uh, things like that. Um, you know, he, he, you know, is to me the, the best, the, uh, the best manager out there and so kind of the standard that everyone I think is kind of held to. I think of like a, the quickest thing that can ruin a heel is if they, if they can't, uh, be a heel when they talk. 
you know, it's easy to buy a heel in the ring, mm-hmm. play the heel, but then when you got to talk, if it doesn't come off, you know, the, the right way, it doesn't work. And I think Bobby had a knack for, throughout all of his career, of being able to be that mouthpiece for the bad guy. And they didn't have to win championships when you're, you know, think about the WWF at the time. The bad guys didn't win the championships. So, um, but they had to be legit bad guys. And, and to be a legit bad guy, if they put you with Bobby Heenan, you were quickly that, quickly that. I think of like um, the shows. WWF had all those shows, almost like Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous type shows. Do you remember those on TV? Well, and he was Tuesday, all, Tuesday Night Titans. Yes. Or, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he was like. There were some funny. Right. I mean, funny he, things. he carried a lot of that. Like his character on there to me is some of what I remember. And then during the Monday Night Wars, he's a announcer for WCW. Yes, with uh, Tony Schiavone mm-hmm. and um, Larry, Zbisco. Larry Zbisco, yeah, and, and that those three together was a uh-huh. great yeah. uh, uh, experience. I remember uh, Thunder came to Lexington. That's back when they take two episodes of Thunder back to back. They do the live one and then the next week, so you were there for like mm-hmm. five straight hours. Cool. And and then by the second taping, there's oh, so yeah. many people would have left. That they would bring everybody down from the close around um, and put them all on camera, you know, opposite camera side and trying to make it look like there were more people. But at that time, you know, WCW was kind of that innovator of putting the um, announcers off to the side instead of next to the ring. And I can remember uh, my friend Adam and I, who I mentioned before, the TV, the split TV in the previous episode. Adam and I went to one of those tapings of Thunder, and we snuck over to the opposite camera side and went all the way down to the railing right in front of the announcers to get because we wanted a picture of Bobby Heenan. And, uh, yeah, we got a picture of Tony Schiavone and Larry Sabisco, oh, yeah. or whoever it was. <laughs> but we really wanted that picture of Bobby Heenan. And um, so uh, it was – when I think of Bobby, of course, I think of him as a manager, but I also think of him as a tremendous – just voice within wrestling and commentator too. Oh, so one, one thing, one, one thing that, uh, that I did uh, forget to mention that it was interesting in that reading about the Rick Rude winning the Intercontinental Championship match. It was kind of fitting that the way that Rick Rude won, Bobby Heenan had a hold of of uh, Ultimate feet. Warrior's feet, mm-hmm. so he couldn't kick out. So of course. Being a typical manager, had to make sure it, to secure that win for his guy. <laughs> he was also a great manager, and he didn't have to carry anything. Like wow. he didn't have a didn't have a megaphone or a tennis racket or an urn. He just was. He didn't have to carry. It was just Bobby Heenan being I don't, Bobby Heenan. I don't know of any manager. I was sitting here thinking, Jay, as you were talking about his career. I'm looking over all the list of our managers. And I don't think there's one that has had success in so many different organizations. AW, well, the WWA, where he started, and that's not a major one, but he he helped carry that, and the territory went down after he went with Vern Gagne into the AWA. When he left the AWA, I know Hulk Hogan, Gene Okerlund, several other personalities Mm -hmm. left. Yeah. But the AWA certainly felt the loss of Bobby Heenan was yeah. incredibly successful there. Then the WWF or the WWE, mm-hmm. but also there's that NWA period mentioned in Georgia that you mentioned there, right? Where he was successful there, and I'd forgotten about the WCW. Yes. So there's really not much on the wrestling landscape mm-hmm. that Bobby the Brain Heenan yeah. didn't conquer, uh-huh. well, and I mean, that's very unique. Yeah. Well, and Greg, you know, you were talking about the AWA. 
as mentioned here, when he left AWA, there's so much talent leaving and going to WWF at the time and everything. A lot of guys didn't didn't work out their you know their kind of their thirty day notice was kind of their their given time frame. But he was actually one that did work out his thirty days at AWA before he went back over. Mm. So I mean, he actually and he actually did it the right way. That's great. So yeah, he got over. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, longevity wise, you know, one of the one of the longest running managers I think in history. And I'll tell you this, I, now, as a 40-plus-year-old man, <laughs> I appreciate everything Bobby did for the business and think of him, mm-hmm. um, certainly. I, I personally think he's the greatest heel manager of all time. Oh, if we yes. were arguing heel managers, he wins 100% uh, in my book. But I hated Bobby Heenan, like, oh, yes. as a kid watching him on TV. I, and that's what he wanted you to do. I mean, he wanted because he was the job. heel manager. Yeah. And I, I was a mark for the... For the good guys, you know, and I've talked about this, you know, on and at that time, and I just, I just couldn't stand it. And then I, but then, you know, like I said, during the Monday Night Wars, him being such a great commentator oh. on WCW, then I started to really appreciate and go back and look at, at his career. Before that, I probably associated him with Andre the Giant the most because right. of the big yeah. WrestleMania entrance and things yes. like that, mm-hmm. and uh, probably as a kid. Then also thinking, oh, I can't stand this guy because he always <laughs> he always was with the bad guy. But well, um, man, what a, what an amazing career! Mm-hmm. Well, I liked him on primetime wrestling with Gorilla Monsoon, the back and forth bickering. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's one that they did, they did say. You know, when when he passed away, that you know there were so many that wrestlers that showed up and everything. But that uh, you know, that even though him and Gorilla kind of bickered back and forth on their commentary, they were the best of friends. Oh, he was, <laughs> it was great. Bobby was loved. Oh yes, Bobby was Heenan was loved in this business. Oh yeah, in the business of wrestling. Absolutely, it's going to be really hard to top Bobby Heenan. No, Bobby. Uh, so, so why we started with that is a kind of confusing. We probably should have finished with that one, but that's okay. Uh, that's what makes it exciting. Um, uh, we're going to move on though, and and into. Um, Maybe a, a manager that I, I personally don't, I didn't have a ton of knowledge of, so I'm pretty excited uh, to hear uh, Greg talk about this next uh, manager. So take it away, Greg. Thank you. And I, I you know, I hate to be like the old man uh, of the of the panel, but it does give me a, a chance to give some guys that may not be as well known um, a little bit of a platform. And, and maybe for you guys listening out there uh, that, that may be... Uh, younger than myself, get on YouTube and and check some of these guys out. I I, I think it'll be worth your time, and um, very very innovative. Gary Hart was born Gary Richard Williams in Chicago. He built himself from Chicago, and he actually was from Chicago. Um, he was born in uh, 1942, and Gary unfortunately passed from this life. Uh, at the young age of 66 back in uh, March of 2008. He was a wrestler uh, for a time, but he is best known for being a wrestling manager. But also I want to share a little bit about his creative um, contributions to the to the sport of professional wrestling. I said he uh, was hailed from Chicago, and he really was, but... He the mantra that he kind of took on is Playboy Gary Hart is part of the jet set and from a very wealthy family. That was all made up. <laughs> he was not. But that character, okay, of the rich kid that has inherited money, where have you all heard that before in other wrestling managers? You think of any? Maybe Jim Cornette? <laughs> 
yes. That Jerry Jarrett, when Jim Cornette broke in in Memphis, going from a ringside photographer, uh, he was not for money from Louisville, but he always talked about his mama in Louisville and the money. So that was kind of a basis to give Jim Cornette that uh, 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 kind of the same personality or character, really. But um, he uh, moved around uh, somewhat in the uh, late 60s. He became a manager. Um, uh, probably one of his clients that he's best known for, Gary Hart never really had a huge, what I would call, a stable. Now, a stable and a faction. Hopefully, we're going to talk about a faction next week, Rick and guys. A faction and a stable. Let me tell you the difference if I can, Rick. Uh, oh, it won't be next week. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> next, next episode. <laughs> next episode. <laughs> We've got to pace ourselves. That's I'm just right. pumped up, brother. I'm pumped up. I'm ready. Let's go. Kevin Marshall, come back to town. Um, our next episode about factions. Factions is where there's a group of wrestlers and a stable Generally, the manager is kind of like the focal point. So he, he never had a big stable. He would sometimes have a few wrestlers. And one of them that he had early on was a gentleman named Don Jardine, who was the mask spoiler. Who uh, I love the old mask wrestlers. We don't see them as much anymore. Don Jardine was a big man, but very agile. Have you ever seen The Undertaker uh, uh, do the walking the ropes? Do you think he 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 uh, came up with that on his own? Of course not. Say no, everybody, no, no, boys and girls out there. Nothing ever new in wrestling. So Watch. Okay, this is your assignment to all the young people listening out there. <laughs> look on YouTube and look up Spoiler Don Jardine, and you'll see the Spoiler walking the ropes. It's pretty cool. And, and the Spoiler had a had a glove, uh, a black glove with the the finger parts cut out, and he kind of had a claw hold and. He was just a really, really cool character, and they toured all over the world, Australia, throughout the South. But one thing I noticed growing up, I didn't really discover Gary Hart until the early 80s on WTBS for Championship Wrestling from Georgia. And um, I noticed in his interviews, he kind of talked similar to Dusty Rhodes. I thought, what's the connection? And I come to find out by getting ready for this podcast uh, I listened to some of um, Gary Hart's book. He had worked on it, and he didn't get to publish it before he passed away, but his story, um, Playboy Gary Hart, My Life in Wrestling, his autobiography, I, I listened to some of it. Uh, didn't have time to read, but I listened to some of it. And I found out in 1968, he's down in Texas for working for Fritz Von Erich, the father of all the Von Erich boys. It hadn't become world-class wrestling world-class championship wrestling. But he meets, um, he goes into the studio here uh, in Fort Worth for a TV tape, and he sees this, this is in Gary Hart's words, a 260-pound blonde-headed kid with granny glasses reading a book of poetry. He went over and said hello, and the young man introduced himself as Virgil Reynolds. During the course of our conversation, he mentioned his uh, ring name would, would be what, guys? Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes, baby. Mm -hmm. Dusty. Mm -hmm. yep. And so Dusty was supposed to do a job that night for a man named Grizzly Smith. Anybody want to take a guess who Grizzly Smith's son is? Jake the Snake Roberts. Jake the Snake Roberts. Ooh, and nice. so, but Gary really liked this guy, so he went to Fritz and said, man, if Dusty gets beat here, he's never he's never going to get over in Texas. He said, I'm sorry, man. We've already written stuff for TV. It's too late. He begs him. He said, okay, if I'll let you 
put him over. Will you be quiet? Leave me alone. He says, yeah. So he goes down to the ring and tells the referee. And so Grizzly goes with it and they put Dusty over. So Dusty starts taking off. Years later, they would reunite in Florida. And in Florida, uh, this is after Gary Hart and primarily the spoiler had been around all over the country. And they worked for Jim Barnett in Australia. So, But they come back. Barnett had relocated from uh, uh, Australia to Atlanta and gotten involved in Georgia Championship Wrestling. And, and so from Georgia Championship Wrestling, there was a few things that went on. He was there for a little while. He would come back. But then he, he was in Florida in 1974. And he was managing Dusty and a uh, a guy, uh, I believe he was from Korea, big guy named Pak Song, who if you ever get the chance to see him, he was a menacing big, most of the uh, Far East wrestlers are, are, are so, sometimes maybe small. This guy was a kind of a giant. So they had him tagged up as, as villains. And um, this was kind of... The Vietnam War was wrapping up, and that was an unpopular war. People were down on the country. It's closing in on 1976 Bicentennial. So they get an idea not to make a big production out of it, but just one night at the matches, Dusty's going to just turn on these guys. And, and Pac Song became Pac Song Nam to kind of, you know. And so Dusty does this, and it just sets Florida, the Florida Territory, on fire box office and stuff. And so Dusty then, can you imagine Dusty as a heel? No. Ooh, yeah. So Dusty then, in this pro-American thing, guess which mantra he takes on? The American dream. The American dream, baby. Yeah. That's the road. That's the road, baby. <laughs> and so they have these, and so if you listen to Gary Hart, he has a little bit of that that vernacular, getting down and dirty, Dusty, I'm talking, I'm going to come to you. You know, and that there's just this long history that I didn't realize that was there. So I think that's a pretty cool thing in the life of uh, Gary Hart that he really shot Dusty up in th through the ranks. It's pretty neat. Gary was not a manager that took a lot of bumps. We're going to talk about Jimmy Hart in a minute. That guy got... He got abused and killed in Memphis. Gary didn't take a lot of bumps because he was involved in a pretty major uh, plane crash. I don't know if any of you all are familiar with this or our listeners. Was he on the Ric Flair plane crash? No, it was one similar to the Ric Flair plane crash. This was in February 1975. And Hart, a guy named Bobby Shane, a wrestler named uh, Buddy Colt and another young wrestler named Michael McCord. Anybody want to guess what he would later become? Mm -hmm. Austin Idol. Oh. They were in a plane coming from a match, and they got. Um, it was being flown by Buddy Colt, the re one of the wrestlers. They got mixed up in the fog, and they crashed into the Tampa Bay, mm -hmm. and it killed Bobby Shane. He his leg got caught or something on one of the seats, and he drowned. And Bobby Shane, I never, because it's 75, I was four years old. But from what I've seen, he was a great star. And actually, just for a side note, gave his crown a, just not too much before that, let Jerry, a young Jerry Lawler borrow that crown, which he kept and became the king. But these guys, and this is another thing, boys and girls, if you're listening, uh, watch some of this. This was a horrific crash. I've, I've watched before on an interview where Gary Hart talks about coming out of that water and hollering out for the other guys. I mean, they were almost killed. I mean, lacerations, and it just knocked almost all of his clothes off, and he got up on the beach and knocked on a door and tried to get help. 
So the reason he didn't take a lot of bumps is he was lucky to be alive. But uh, Gary would go on from there. He would go back to Texas, and he would become what we would call, I guess, what's known as a booker uh, in Texas for a lot of the Texas wrestling, not just only world-class, but uh, Houston or San Antonio. It would go through the Dallas office. He had some great ideas in some of the heyday. I think Jason... I, or excuse me, Jay, you touched on the fabulous Freebirds and their feud with the Von Erics in the heyday of world class. Yep. The heel turn on the cage match with Ric Flair and the Freebirds and yes. that war. Mm-hmm. Gary yep. was very responsible uh, for that. Mm-hmm. It may have been better back in the day not to have a creative team, but just maybe one, 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 one vision and the guys buying in. I've read a lot of stories where Gary was a team player and even though he wasn't a real big man, I've read accounts from Cowboy Bill Watts and others where if a guy was causing trouble, even a big guy, he would go up behind the scenes and get in their face and say, you need to get with it, you know. And so Gary was really loved in the uh, business. He would go on from, um, while he was in Texas, he would also go over into Georgia. That's where I first met him. His first client that I met is a guy named Kabuki, the great Kabuki, who is one of the most fascinating heels I've ever seen. He's not a terribly large individual, but very mysterious. They had an incredible backstory on him that he his face had been burnt in some alley in Singapore in a back alley fight and scarred, so he wore this paint. He had long, dark hair, and um, he wasn't very big, but he had a different kind of karate and ninjutsu and all this stuff and he could grab people in certain places and almost just like paralyze them he would walk on the ropes and he was noted for this green mist that he would sometimes spray out even like a ceremony before the match and get on his hands sometimes he would spray it to hurt the opponent but he didn't move very fast and he kind of was very meticulous and it it just he's an interesting interesting guy Gary would later manage another wrestler from the Far East named the great Muta, which most of you all, yeah. some, some of you younger guys may be more familiar with, later on in Jim Crockett and the World Championship Wrestling. So he was involved with that as well. I, I don't want to read all the people that he managed, but um, Bruiser Brody, Kevin Sullivan, um, Terry Funk, Dick Slater, uh, the great Muta, of course, we mentioned. And so that just goes on and on and on. But... Um, I just wanted to give a few props to, to, to Gary Hart as a guy that may be overlooked and um, certainly had uh, certainly had a, a whole lot of contributions. He was a survivor out of that plane crash there in Florida in 1975. He helped launch. Um, I, I, I think he did a lot to help the career of Dusty Rhodes and he, he just he just was a great, great manager as far as like uh, uh, his talking ability and, and like you've mentioned, Jay, the things that's important for a manager. So just wanted to give a shout out to Gary Hart. As a huge Dusty Rhodes fan, that was really intriguing to me because I don't know, you know, like, like I said, I've for, probably forgotten more than I remember and I didn't, I couldn't have told you a lot about Gary Hart before that, but making that connection to Dusty Rhodes really is, is really interesting because I was a huge Dusty Rhodes fan. Thank you, Ricky Cobb. We're going to get fucking like a monkey in here, baby. <laughs> Ricky Cobb. Some of it was because of Dusty's way of doing interviews, and well, I, it was always so intriguing. Thank you for bringing that up because I learned in this 
Dusty didn't do that until the, what would you call the opposite of a heel turn? A face turn? Yes. Is that the, yeah. So that face turn mm-hmm. with Gary Hart and all that, then he started shooting these promos. A guy named Thunderbolt Patterson had been real popular, and he, I hate to say, like, the street talker job. So Dusty started kind of working that in. The rest is history. No, what I listened to him, right? He did, the list was a character. Yes. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I just really some of the best and, and when you oh. think of promos if we ever do an episode on just promos Dusty's got to be in there with oh. the hard times hard promo. times my favorite promo hard times baby that's my favorite promo of all time I've probably Kevin some the devil times. made him do it baby <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time he, oh, yeah. looked, he looked in the camera and he said something to the effect of he said Ric Flair hell is coming and I'm coming with him and I'm like hell's a him uh, I don't know with it I don't know but I I was just in, I just couldn't stop watching a, a but Dusty if you listen interview. to Gary Hart there's a little bit of Dusty almost like they're almost and I always wondered that and so it was neat in looking back what was cool is seeing the connection and all this so. cool stuff yeah, I mean, if I, if I was doing a Mount Rushmore of, of wrestlers, which would be a fun podcast to do in the oh, future, man. by the way. Uh, but uh, but man, Dusty Dusty's on there for me. Yeah, if, if he's the Mount Rushmore, he's he's one of the, the faces of, of professional wrestling, and uh, the promo is probably what did it. And for you to say that Gary Hart had a big impact on that, that's a huge part of wrestling. Thank you so much, oh, yeah. Mr. Greg, for for bringing in a, a one that probably you know even. I don't know anybody else here. A big Gary Hart. Fan. I've got, I've, 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 I've got a big Greg. When, when when you chose Gary Hart, I said who? And I, 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 I had to. I, I, I had to go. I, I I I learned my lesson well. I went on YouTube. Went up and, and, and looked him up. And I was like, huh? And I actually, I, when, when I saw him, I I, I looked at him. I was like, all right. He was with Abdul the Butcher. And, Thank you. Yeah, and, that was and, another and, client. And, and, and that, 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 that was one because I remember Abdul the Butcher from you know. AWA and, and stuff like that when yeah. when I was younger and I was like oh that's who that's who that's who he is I'm like okay yeah now I know who he is remember I said he got up into somebody's face one time mm-hmm. that was reportedly one of the ones that he got in their face and Absolutely. said you need behind the scenes and said whatever it was you get need to get with the program mm-hmm. yeah so yeah he also cre- helped create King Kong Bundy he brought him to Texas he lost a hair match and he looked better he, he gave him the name King Kong. And I think he was the creative mind behind the missing link. I don't know if you remember. The oh yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And the gang. He managed the gang. I don't know if he was the creative behind it or not. One man gang started out here in Lexington as Crusher Broomfield for ICW. Yes. Which I'd love to talk about that some other time, boys and girls. But yeah, Gary Hart. I just wanted to give props to him. I hope you all found that very interesting. Thank you, Greg, for kind of taking us to the past a little bit, and uh, thank you for taking on that role here in our podcast and and uh, kind of taking us to a place in wrestling which many of us either uh, never got to experience or get to have the great opportunity to enjoy and learn from. Uh, that kind of takes us from the past. We'll be considered our probably most modern manager, one who's still managing today, and uh, Jason Gary's going to take us through that. So, Jason, take it away. Thank you, Rick. I'm going to do Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman was born... September 11, 1965. Heyman decided he wanted to work in professional wrestling when he saw Vince McMahon interview superstar Billy Graham. And then Heyman made his managerial debut on January 2, 1987, initially appearing on the Northeast Independent Circuit before moving to a more high-profile stint with Championship Wrestling from Florida in February of 87. 
Then he joined forces with Kevin Sullivan and Oliver Humperdinck and acquired the name Paul E. Dangerously because of the resemblance to the Michael Keaton's character in Johnny Dangerously's movie. The Polly Dangerously gimmick was an extension of Heyman's own personality, a branch New Yorker with a yuppie attitude often seen holding a mobile phone, which was occasionally used as a foreign object. According to Heyman, he decided to use the mobile phone as a weapon when he watched the Gordon Gecko movie in Wall Street, played by Michael Douglas. I didn't know that. That's pretty. That's cool. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I mentioned. I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten about that gimmick yeah. that he had the phone, didn't he? And it yeah. was the old school. Oh like, yeah. Oh, like really the, do some damage. The Zach Morris phone. Is that, <laughs> <laughs> that's what you call it? That's what I would think of it as. And then after departing AWA, Heyman went to the Alabama-based Continental Wrestling Federation. Heyman joined with Eddie Gilbert's Hot Stuff Stable. Behind the scenes, Gilbert was the head booker for the promotion, and Heyman became his assistant. Heyman was also the head booker for Windy City Wrestling in Chicago and started developing a reputation as being a... An innovative? Innovative television writer. There you go. Rick, you'll have to fix that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> or just publish it. <laughs> in 1988, Heyman jumped to Jim Crockett's promotion where Dangerously again managed the original Midnight Express in a feud with the new Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. And... Mr. Greg taught us that. No, he didn't. Mr. Carl, Mr. Rick taught us that. Uh, I'll take credit. <laughs> Thank you, ding, Jason. Ding. Thank you very much. I taught you that in the last episode. Uh, it's okay. Because um, I was super excited to see that. Because I was, when I talked about how um, the Midnight Express with uh, Jim Cornette and the original Midnight Express with Polly Dangerously. That and was how, a cool angle. Yeah. Man. A cool ma- uh, feud. Yeah. Angle feud, the whole deal. And how, it was, it was how they married each other. But anyway, go on, right. Jason. Yeah, sorry. the new Midnight Express with Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane and their right. manager, Jim Cornette, as well, managing Mean Gene Mark Callis. I mean, I'm sorry, Mean Mark Callis, a.k.a. The Undertaker. Right. Mm-hmm. Talk more yeah. about him in a minute here. He settled into the role of the announcer, joining Jim Ross to call the matches at World Championship Wrestling and other programming. Heyman admitted he learned more working with Ross than from the previous mentors. While in between stints in WCW, Heyman went to work for ICW as a writer, but was fired on his first day in the middle of his first TV taping. <laughs> I guess his attitude, because he knows everything. I guess, maybe. Brash. Brash. Very brash. In 1991, WCW needed to restruct its heels, so Heyman returned to the role as spokesperson and ringside manager as the manager of the Dangerous Alliance, a new version of the Four Horsemen. And I believe that was Kevin Sullivan started that one, right? I would, I would assume. Um, right? It's amazing how much Kevin Sullivan shows up. Yeah, well, he, he was involved with that WCW creative mm-hmm. big time. I think when I was reading, he was one of the main bookers, right? Back yes, then? Uh, yes, he was. And got a lot of the creative direction thing, the, the, the dangerous alliance you know as far as you know uh, was had, had a lot of future stars in it oh yeah and Jay do you know who their uh, main um, centerpiece of the stable was if I'm not mistaken I think it was a young Stone Cold he was one of them Rick Root oh Rick Root huh, I didn't know that that name's going to come Root. up a bunch today too yep Rick Root I did mm-hmm. not know Rick Root was the main center stage yep. piece of the stable mm-hmm. And then Stone Cold Steve Austin learned their craft from Rude. Mm-hmm. So Stone Cold said he learned a lot from Stunning Heyman. Steve. Was he st- Stunning Steve? Stunning, Stunning Steve. Stunning Steve. Hair, right? Yes. yes. He was uh-huh. not the... Yeah. And then Heyman led Rude to the United States title and the Anderson Eaton tag team to the tag team titles. The Dangerous Alliance dominated WCW through most of 1992. Mm-hmm. Okay. Heyman comes and joins World Wrestling Federation. 
generation in 2001 to 2006. He was a commentator and a writer. Heyman became the broadcaster for the WF. He replaced Jerry Lawler when he, he got mad and quit due to a dispute over his wife, mm -hmm. the cat. Yeah. What's her real name? They fired her, and he got mad, and he left. Stacy something? Stacy Carter. Carter, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then he got mad and left, and they went and got <clears throat> Paul Heyman. Right. During the time, he, re he um, resumed his storyline rivalry with Jim Ross. In July, while retaining the commentary role, Heyman recreated ECW as a stable, which then immediately merged with Shane McMahon's WCW to form the Alliance during the invasion angle. Heyman was fired following the 2001 Survivor Series when the Alliance lost a do-or-die match that marked the end of the invasion angle, and that was just awful. <laughs> right, yeah. They, didn't, have they the didn't do it right. They didn't have the right pieces people. to it. Yeah. All the people. big guys stayed home and collected the check. And they had to go again. Who the biggest one was Booker T? I wish that Probably. would have played out differently because oh, if that be had, that, that could have been a really cool thing had they been able to get the WCW the right stars. Mm -hmm. Oh, if they could have got Sting to come over. Oh, but they Goldberg, could have, they could have ridden that and that would have been a game changer. I mean, like wrestling would be different, a little different. And you might not remember, but there was prior to that um, when... Uh, Paul was still doing ECW near the end. They did an invasion angle with ECW into WWE, and they would have yeah. ECW guys in the in the crowd and things like that. And there was a lot of rumors behind the scenes that Paul and, and Vince were working together by that time already. And that's how it was trying to uh, lead in this idea that eventually it would they would somehow merge in some way. Uh, but uh, that's kind of how the Dudley's came in. Yeah, but, but they could. Yeah. but they couldn't capitalize. They were trying to do a similar thing with the WCW, but like you said, it just they didn't have the the players. No, and then he was during this time the head writer for SmackDown, mm -hmm. and they were. This is when they a lot of people said SmackDown was a lot better than Raw during this time. That Heyman was the booker for it and wrote a lot of it, mm -hmm. and this is when they had Stephanie Man as the general manager. But he was only he only um, was the writer from 2000, July 2002 to February 03. And then on his documentary, the 2014, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Paul Heyman. Heyman stated that the SmackDown brand he was writing was beating Raw in ratings, merchandise, and live show attendance during the time. McMahon wanted a real-life competition between the Raw and the SmackDown brands then. But it fizzled out. It didn't. That's when they were doing what every other pay-per-view yeah, or was that when they were doing two pay-per-views a month? One was SmackDown and one was Raw? I don't know. It got overwhelming there for a while with so many. But yeah, I think it, that is when they were trying to do a definite split between the two and not having a lot of guys cross over except at the big pay-per-views each year, which would be like a dual SmackDown and Raw pay-per-views like Survivor Series and, um, yeah. and Raw Rumble. Yeah. They would have the champions, right? Yeah. Right. And then in, uh, he started managing Brock Lesnar from 2002 to 2003. And this was big for him. Heyman began mentoring Lesnar, and McMahon decided to make Heyman Lesnar's manager. Heyman helped Lesnar capture the championships for 126 days after Lesnar's main roster debut when Lesnar beat The Rock at SummerSlam to also become the youngest champion, undisputed champion of all time. And I guess they put him with him because Brock couldn't talk. No, yeah, and, and Brock as a heel. Like we talked about that before, the yeah. heels need... A mouthpiece. A, a mouthpiece if they can't come across as a heel when they talk. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of been the, I guess, the, the Achilles heel of 
ironically, as, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for Brock Lesnar early on, right. was that he looks like a monster, he wrestles like a monster, and he doesn't sound like a monster. Right. And so if that's the case, you got to put him with a manager, and that manager has to be good. Yeah. You know, you can't yeah. to get it over, and Paul's good. And so. Paul's great at it. Oh, yeah. He can, oh, yeah. to me, it looks like he's not memorizing anything out there. <laughs> he oh. just, what is it Stone Cold said? They, back then they gave him pointers, right? And he can just run with it. Well, the, and, and, and a lot of credit that goes to to the way that I think he he knows with the, his writing, you know, his his writing styles know knows how to hit those marks and what what can actually you know pull some of those strings and yeah. and, and make things come over. He also has a way of making you believe someone's a monster when they're yes. not a monster. Yeah. And I guess if you look at like the ECW days, and I know Greg, you just love it when we talk ECW. <laughs> but, uh, and I but, haven't brought that up. But right. I, I know you did because he's not a manager yeah. at that time. And yeah. I understand that, uh, Jason. But what, when it comes to the writing part, side yeah. of what Paul Heyman's been able to do is he can make you believe that someone is larger than life who's not larger than life. Yeah. And if mm-hmm. in the way he books them or the way he writes them as the character. And if you look at guys like Taz come to mind oh, or, yeah. or Mike Awesome comes to mm-hmm. mind where you have a guy that okay I when I watch TV and I some people probably have no idea who Mike may not even know who Mike Awesome is um, but mm-hmm. when you watched ECW you thought he was every bit as big yep. as 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 an undertaker as a cane mm-hmm. uh, he was a monster of man and then yeah. he was one that actually did come over yeah. with uh, in the in the big switch of uh, he... people guys coming over he came in WWF yeah. and he looked small in the ring yes. and you thought well, he's not that monster. But Paul had made us believe he was. Yeah. Well, Paul had a lot of good things. I mean, I, I, I'm a Memphis wrestling guy, so I remember um, his brief time in Memphis. I didn't know where that fell along in his career path, but it was fairly early on, but not the yeah. very beginning. He was always, uh, 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 he had come in, and like he had been involved managing an Austin Idol, Tommy Rich versus Jerry Lawler feud, and that was some of the best business that Memphis had done since Jimmy Hart had left. They had so many different managers that they tried after Jimmy left. We'll talk about him in a minute, going to the WWF yeah. in uh, like 1985, that uh, Paul was really good, and that was a really good angle. They did a lot of business, a lot of sellouts, because Tommy Rich was kind of like, hiding under the ring, and it was a hair match. Jerry Lawler never lost the hair matches or loser leave town matches or stipulation matches in Memphis, but he lost to Austin Idol because Tommy Rich was hiding under the ring. and yeah. It was a cage match, but there was just enough room you know, to come in. And Paul, Paul Heyman or Paul Dangerously was the manager, and uh, so he, he was really good with that. The only thing I don't like about Paul is his contributions with the extreme stuff with ECW, and I... The only thing I have against that, I just think that that kind of puts a little bit of a you know a, a bad mark on the wrestling business, and and right. it just don't make sense to me. I mean, feuds kind of progress. Like you don't start out getting upset and just say, okay, I want to hit you with a flaming ball bat with with spikes on it. You know, yeah, right? Yeah. If you do think that, then. We've got facilities probably that you need to be in. <laughs> yes. But so to start out there, but I, you know, it was just kind of weird. You know, some of it I look, I did not remember, I didn't know about it then, and I've seen some of it. But okay. yeah, I'm not opposed to like there being a maybe a little bit of a, a, a match to end a feud or something or a right. send off, but 
the ECW, the kind of the violence that they were into all the time oh. was just a little bit too much Barb- for me. Barbed wire matches every 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 uh, every taping. Come on, yeah, <laughs> just a little bit too <laughs> much. So I'm not I'm not a big fan of that. But he he very much has a he's a very talented guy. If I can just ever win one of these, my, I'm gonna pick my topic as greatest ECW match of all time, <laughs> just so Greg has to watch it. Mine will be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the last match The last one. Favorite. That was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so then he went on after um, being the manager of Brock Lesnar, and then he was the SmackDown general manager and head writer. So then he went to – they had him go to Ohio Valley Wrestling on July 10th, 2005, and then he took over the position of the head booker and the writer there and the development, developmental territory maintained by WWE. It was during this time that he forged a real-life friendship with CM Punk, and that's where he got his bond going with Punk and – he loves him. And then he did the little, they brought him back for the ECW one night stand. So he did that for a little bit. And then they had that. And then he came back in 2012. He returned to be Brock Lesnar's manager. And then I think that's when they had Brock Lesnar come in and he lost to John Cena. And then he had the bouts with Triple H. Okay, in April twenty in April twenty twelve, Brock Lesnar returned to WWE. Heyman returned to WWE on May seventh of twenty twelve episode of Raw and Lesnar's legal advisor, his advocate. He has managed five WWE champions: Brock Lesnar, Big Show, Kurt Angle, Rob Van Dam, CM Punk. And that time, that's that's the five people. That's the five champions he's managed. The champions he's managed. Okay, because yeah. there have been other like they call them Heyman guys. Yeah. Um, and there's been other attempts. I mean, I guess, uh, what's the one that was kind of a complete bust? Curtis Axel. Curti- yeah, Curtis Axel. Yeah. Um, they tried to make him a Heyman guy, and it just didn't work. But, um, so I guess everything Paul has touched didn't turn to gold. But no. but the, to get Lesnar over the way he has is huge. Yeah, very huge. Yeah. And they're talking about his legacy. Heyman's work as a promoter and booker has been praised by many wrestling followers and critics. Former ECW champion Raven called him the most creative genius the business has ever seen. Heyman is known for his promos being considered a genius and is widely regarded as one of the best promo cutters of all time. But I don't know about you all think that, but... <laughs> I think if you go back, I mean, there's so many times. I've, I've watched so much in the last, you know, since we started the podcast. And, and, and he shows up all different kinds of places. AWA shows up when I'm watching the original Midnight Express. Yeah. And he introduces them into the ring. And that's kind of what managers do. And that's what he still does today for, for Brock Lesnar. And um, he does get you excited about, oh. you know, what's, what's to come. They use them in WWF today, WWE today, as a way as to do that to get you excited to pump yeah. up the next match for for Lesnar or um, you know or basically call out the guy who he's who's about to I'm, he's going to beat you. This is not what does he say? It's not a prediction. It's a spoiler. Yeah. And then yeah. and says this is what's going to happen. And that's just great talking. He he is a great talker. Um, he hasn't managed a ton of people. If you then you look look at the numbers because of his amount suit a large amount of time of being a writer mm-hmm. or being a um, you know the, the the booker. What's his current role? I'm not exactly he's, sure. Um, he's the um, executive director. We know this. Apparently. I know it. Give me one second. <laughs> is it one of the shows? Yeah. The WWE. Right show? now, Paul Heyman is the backstage executive director of Monday Night Raw. So he writes. So he is the creative direction for Raw. I think it's him and um, they brought Eric Bischoff in for SmackDown. Yeah, that, no, but it's uh, but Bruce Prichard. 
It's him and Bruce oh, Pritchard. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I think. Because they brought Bruce back, too. For the love. And, uh, as well. So that's interesting that they're working together. Um, I remember the Raw, when, when he became the announcer on Raw. I can vividly remember that, when Jerry was gone and Paul came in as the announcer on Raw. And I can always, it being a lot of tension between him and Vince at times. Because uh, Vince would come and do announcing then still, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can remember it being a little tense. And I always loved the banter between him and JR going back and forth. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen where he complains about the earpiece idea in, in WWF where Vince is in your ear talking to you yes. to kind of guide you through the matches or what he wants you to say, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And of course, I've heard that disputed as well, that it's not as much as some people say it is, it's not as guided, and that, or that Paul would go off script a lot or things like that. But uh, maybe that's to kind of increase the lore of Paul Heyman uh, being the kind of loose cannon uh, mm-hmm. that he is. But um, I always enjoy Paul on TV. I yeah. Like mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. But I like the Paul Heyman, the advocate. I'm the advocate. <laughs> he's not a manager, he's an advocate. <laughs> and he managed Ryback and that curves Axel. You lose. You lose. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hey, Michael McGillicuddy. Hey, Michael. Isn't that guy suiting for a manager to get, to get disqualified? Does that mean Jason's disqualified because he's an advocate, not a manager? That's right, he's disqualified. I hope that was better, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for that great job with uh, Paul Heyman. And I'm going to try to prove why another Paul, Paul Bearer, is the greatest uh, uh, manager of all time. Um, born William Alvin Moody on April 10th, 1954. As a teenager, um, Bill Moody would uh, start out as a ringside photographer like so many other great managers of the time. And um, he actually did a little wrestling while he was in the Air Force. He would, on his off days, would do a little uh, in-ring uh, uh, wrestling. Uh, but uh, by 1979 is when he actually began his managing career. And he's a part-time manager. And he went by the name Percival Pringle III, or as most people called him, Percy. Um, it was also during this time that he decided to kind of get out of the wrestling business a bit because he had just had his first son and he wanted to spend more time with his family. And uh, so he became a certified funeral director and embalmer. Um, so that's a real life career of his. And uh, he did that all the way until about 1984. But by 1984, Percy Pringle uh, was working full time for Florida Championship Wrestling, World Class Championship Wrestling, and the United States Wrestling Association all at the same time. And uh, during this time, he either managed or was associated with Rick Rude, stunning Steve Austin, Mark Calloway, Lex Luger, Eric Embry, and the Ultimate Warrior. Um, In 1990, he actually joined the WWF. And as was typical for Vince at the time in the 90s, uh, he used uh, Paul's actual job in real life as the inspiration for his character, of Paul Bearer. But what's also interesting is that uh, Vince doesn't really get the credit for coming up with the name. If you hear a lot of different stories out there, and uh, you know, there's a lot of different stories in professional wrestling, but um, Paul Bearer gives Hawk or Mike Hextrand the um, credit for coming up with the name Paul Bearer. As he thought it was funny, uh, kind of that play on words of uh, for the funeral uh, type character uh, to be called that. And uh, so that's where we get the character we kind of know today, that uh, urn-carrying, uh, suit-wearing, ghostly manager uh, with the catchphrase of, Oh, yes! Um, and uh, so that's where we kind of get that Paul, Paul Bear that we uh, think of now. Um, now, I associate Paul Bear pretty much with The Undertaker. So, and that makes sense because that's kind of the first character that, that he is, or first wrestler that he is he manages. He comes in as... 
uh, Undertaker's manager. But that's not the introduction of The Undertaker. The Undertaker had a manager, and that was uh, Bruce Pritchard as Brother Love. And so Brother Love was The Undertaker's manager, and then um, he hands The Undertaker over to Paul Bearer. And that's where we, as, as fans, learn Paul's name, as, because Bruce asks him what his name is, and he says it's Paul Bearer, and that he's now going to be The Undertaker's manager. And that goes on for a while. Um, and in some people's minds, they might think that The Undertaker and um, uh, Paul Bearer are together. For a long period of time. That's really not the case, though. They would, as typical of the time, they would use the manager, here in this case, Paul Bear, as the catalyst for many feuds with The Undertaker. So he starts out as The Undertaker's uh, manager, and they do a lot of casket matches, things like that, and it's a perfect match uh, but, uh, between the two. But then they, they turn on each other. And in that turn, uh, you create a lot of other great characters that kind of go along with The Undertaker's story. For instance, um, in that period, Paul Bearer would manage uh, Mankind and Vader uh, together, and they would go against The Undertaker. So um, it's really cool that these really great characters like uh, Vader and uh, Mankind and um, eventually another character called The Executioner all get uh, involved in this big storyline um, against The Undertaker. Eventually, he even manages a fake Undertaker that goes against The Undertaker. So... Um, it's just really interesting to me that while, yes, we associate him with The Undertaker, he brings in all these other characters along the way into The Undertaker's storyline. If you've ever tried to follow The Undertaker's storyline, it's pretty loosely based, but, um, but Paul Bearer kind of ties all those knots together. Even For some reason, I remember, and I can't find it anywhere, but I remember Mankind wearing a medallion around his neck and that being the source of his power and for some reason in my head I thought he crushed the urn and then turned the urn into the medallion and the medallion but maybe I just made that up and if that's the case in my head and I made that up man I would have been good back then that was a good right, 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 that would have been good if that, <laughs> did Mankind debut with Paul Bear? I don't know I, I'm not exactly sure I'd have to go back and look um, he, they brought him up to fight Shawn Michaels right for right. the championship yeah but I don't know if Paul was with him at that time. I'd have to go back. And I, didn't, I tried to really focus this time more just kind of on some interesting stuff and not try to follow exactly everything. But um, they, I, they the, um, So Kane's brought in as The Undertaker's brother. And the idea behind the story is that as a child, The Undertaker's house was burned down. And there's a secret that, uh, that Paul has. And he's actually trying to trick The Undertaker into allowing him to be his manager again. It's, it's almost like he's blackmailing him. Right. He's saying, you have to be with me again because if you don't, I'm going to tell the world this secret. Mm -hmm. And he keeps saying that. Well, there's a you know, feud between the two. Undertaker doesn't want to become his manager. He wants him. So he has to reveal the secret, and the secret is he has a brother. And it's the brother who actually started the fire and was burned terribly in this fire. Right. And so he, br and he brings out Cain. What's kind of interesting is early on in the career of The Undertaker, he was introduced as Kane the Undertaker, but it didn't last very long and eventually just switched to The Undertaker. Yeah. So this is kind of an idea a lot of people have is that, okay, back in the past, we had this idea, well, now we're going to bring Kane out. So now Kane shows up, and obviously you have the big red machine type Kane with the, with the full out mask and all that kind of stuff, and he, obviously a, a big man uh, as well. Um, and we'll talk too much about his previous characters and stuff like that in, in wrestling. But um, so Kane comes out as a fully masked character. He's, the idea behind him, he's horribly burned in this fire that happened at the Undertaker's house uh, when he, they were children. And he has this brother he thought he'd lost in the fire is alive. Kane is alive! 
you know, kind of an idea. And um, so here he comes. And now you have this huge feud between the two of them. Well, it's, a per- it's, it's perfect because you have two big men who can work and put on these great matches. And that's, this feud goes on and on and on for a while uh, between the two with, uh, with Paul Bearer being Kane's manager. Long story short, eventually those two end up as a tag team. You have the Brothers of Destruction. You have uh, with, with Paul Bearer. And uh, they kind of become the wrestlers, the two wrestlers that Paul Bear is with uh, for, the, for the rest of his uh, managing career. If, um, what, a really neat story that Kane tells when he talks to Stone Cold is um, one time uh, that, that how, well, one cool thing he talks about is how uh, Bill was the tr- a true manager for him, mm-hmm. that he, he would rent the cars for them. He would book the hotels for them. The, tra- the travel that WWE didn't do, he would do for them. He truly managed Kane throughout that process. And if this is a time when kayfabe is still real, so you have uh, Kane trying to be, you know, that character even in public. So he's wearing like hoods over his head and stuff when he gets his luggage and not talking to fans because uh, he could supposedly couldn't talk at the time. Eventually, Kane can talk. Eventually, we realize he's not burned at all, and he can That's talk. And, he's the mayor. Yeah, nice. And now he's the mayor. Nice. So you know, um, you know, things change over time. But um, but it's America. It it's is. Great. He uh, at that right at this time he is still you know trying to be this character everywhere he goes. Well, he tells this funny story where um, uh, where uh, Bill Moody calls him in the morning and he's sick and he doesn't think he's going to be able to make it to the. To the show, I'm not feeling well, and things like that. And he's thinking, well, I'm, he said, he said, um, I'm going to go, but you're going to have to drive. He says to to, to Kane, and so um, so Kane's driving the car into the arena, and Paul Bear is in the in the passenger seat. Well, there's all these fans lined up waiting because this is the time I, I I did this too. I'll admit it. There were a time when I would wait in the parking garages too to try to catch a glimpse of of the wrestlers as they came in and out of their cars and wave at them or try to get them over to sign things and stuff like that and um so this is that time there's all these fans lined up along the route and they're having to drive slowly to get into the to the parking area and uh bill uh booty uh, rolls down the window and he he yells out it's a miracle kane can drive <laughs> and <laughs> as a, so that you know in case people see you know kane just driving down the road you know you don't have to be so, able to talk to drive no you don't i guess but uh just to kind of get the fans going, but uh, it's just a funny story that he told that I, that, that I really enjoyed hearing. So, uh, but anyway, um, eventually there is a time when you know, Paul leaves the WWF and he ends up in TNA wrestling, like so many did, as in different roles uh, later on in his career. But um, to me, when you're talking about him as a manager, I think of him, you know, basically being that that catalyst, that midterm between bringing in The Undertaker, bringing in Mankind, mm-hmm. connect, connecting the Mankind story to The Undertaker story, connecting the Kane story. Yeah, there was a time where, now there was a big part of the story, Greg, you'll love this part, where um, Kane's not really uh, The Undertaker's brother, he's actually the son of Paul Bearer. Yes. Um, yep. Instead, but oh, it's, oh, it's The Undertaker's mother and Paul Bearer, and they had an affair, and that's Kane. And so that not, had to have been in the attitude era. That, yes, no, so, yes, yeah. Was, yeah. Yes. Even Paul Bearer gets in on Even, even Paul Bearer ends <laughs> oh, up in the my. attitude oh, era. Want to talk about the Paul Bearer thing where they killed him? Oh, yeah. The yeah. There's a pay-per-view, yeah, where they, they, they bury him. 
not technically well, killed they, him, but they, they buried, concrete, buried him alive and then poured concrete on top of him, yeah. And then he comes back still. So, not only is he, in my opinion, the greatest manager of Untai, he can come back from the dead. Hey. So, I don't know. I want to tell kind of an interesting story about Paul Bearer that really has very nothing to do with him being a manager. and uh, But... Uh, as I talk to people about the podcast, some people like our little side stories that we tell, our little personal stories. And I do have one about about Paul Bearer. Um, I've never met him. I wish I had. I wish, you know, uh, before he unfortunately uh, passed away, I wish I had uh, had met him and, and stuff. But I haven't. But I do have a story about him. And that uh, in the 90s, I was uh, buying up wrestling figures. On I'd go up to stores and, and, and buy the figures. And at the time, because of distribution, some place, some, you know, a certain wrestler might be super popular in one place and not so popular in another. So if you could get the wrestlers here, stick them up on eBay, and then sell them, you could turn a little bit of a profit. Because you might be able to get a Rikishi here, and they couldn't get Rikishis where he was super popular or, where, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that as a little uh, way to, to make some money in college, was uh, buying wrestling figures and then selling them online. And one of my little gimmicks for that, to kind of promote my uh, little side business, is I would put wrestling cards in with the wrestler that the person wasn't expecting to get. So if they bought a card from WW Figures 1, which was my little my spot on uh, eBay, then they got a little pack of two or three wrestling cards. So I'd go buy a, two or three packs of cards, get 15, 30, whatever, throw a couple in there, and there's a little surprise for them. And then I'd you know, try to up my rating on eBay as an eBay business. So along the way, I would, I would buy these wrestling cards to stick in there. Well, one time I opened a pack of cards, and instead of a card being in there, there's, there are cards in there, but there's a, a white card in there that says that I had won a, a signature card. But it of an un, of a wrestler, and I had to mail it in in order to get my signature card. So I fill this card out and mail it in, and I'm waiting. I feel like Ralphie in the Christmas story, waiting on his little orphan Annie decoder uh, ring. And I'm waiting for this. I'm in my it's just college. I'm not you know it's, it's, kind of, it's a little sadder than uh, Ralphie. Uh, but anyway, I'm waiting on this uh, this card to come in the mail, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. Well, finally, you know how anything with mail order stuff is takes forever shows up and I'm feverishly opening I think it's going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin it's going to be Bret Hart something like that and it's Paul Bearer and it comes with an official certificate of authenticity and all this stuff and it's signed Paul Bearer you know it's not signed William Allen Moody it's signed Paul Bearer and at the time I was to be honest, a little disappointed because I thought, really? I get a manager's card? I don't even get a, like, The Undertaker? That would have been kind of cool, but, you know. Your heart Yeah, I got it. Oh, oh, man. Come on. Uh, but now, um, after, you know, after the years have passed and things like that and then going back and looking at how people contribute to the business in different ways, mm-hmm. um, that's one of my few wrestling memorabilia things I'll hold on to forever is that card because he he did have a huge impact in the business and and he was a huge character and you don't have to be the guy in the ring doing the the match to bring it if you watch him on the sidelines during a cane match or an undertaker match he's he's working the whole match he is either raising the urn or he's slapping the ring or he's getting the crowd going or turning and looking or reacting to every move and he worked every single minute of those matches to try to get them over as best he could and play his part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember him doing his, uh, do you remember his little backstage show? The funeral, the funeral parlor. parlor. Oh, yeah. And he'd be like, welcome to my funeral parlor. <laughs> and he always referred to The Undertaker as my 
Baker, uh, which kind of gives even more credit to the character. If he's yeah. the pallbearer, if he's the you know at the funeral parlor, and here's the Undertaker, um, to kind of get that character over and over. And not that Mark Calloway needed someone to talk for him. No, he didn't. He was a great talker. But adding that element to that character just made it so '90s wrestling, like that era of wrestling. And but if think about it. What's the one guy of that era that follows like a, a career, like gimmick? All those career gimmicks. What's the one that's still around to this day? Undertaker. And still, you know, yeah, he changes a little bit throughout his career, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. but that getting that character over yeah. is, I think, Paul Bear had a huge part of that and carrying him through the storylines. And I think you have to give Paul credit. I mean, it's really cool though that throughout his career he managed. Steve Austin at one point, he managed Mark Calloway and The Undertaker at some point. Yep, yep. You know, he has these connections, these guys who are just mega stars yeah. later on in the business. So I just have a lot of respect for, for Paul Bear and what he, what he added to the business. Since Kevin can't be here, he did send us his favorite manager, and that is Jimmy Hart. So I'm going to start out by quickly kind of reviewing some stuff about Jimmy Hart, and then Greg's going to do him real justice by uh, kind of focusing on, especially I imagine, his time in Memphis as well as uh, some of his other accolades. But some of the cool stuff I noticed when uh, when talking about when doing some research on Jimmy Hart was obviously him getting a start in show business uh, with the Gentries, a, a singing group where they had a big hit called Keep On Dancing. Um, he went to high school with uh, Jerry Lawler in Memphis, um, which then Jerry asked him to help him with a song, and that kind of leads to his world in professional wrestling. Jerry was already well-known in the professional wrestling business, and that kind of links um, Jimmy Hart to the wrestling business. Uh, throughout that time, he, uh, he was a big-time heel manager of uh, people like Ravishing Rick Rude, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, Randy Savage, King Kong Bundy, Bobby Eaton, The Iron Sheik, Kevin Sullivan... Uh, and even played a huge part in the Andy Kaufman feud, which Greg did a tremendous job of telling us about in his angle, uh, um, best angle ever argument. Um, even being uh, that being the time that, it, that he's attributed to getting the name The Mouth of the South from Andy Kaufman. Uh, in an interview uh, situation, uh, Andy felt like he couldn't get a word in edgewise to Jimmy talking so much, and he says, you might as well call him The Mouth of the South. And uh, that is where that nickname that stuck with Jimmy Hart from that point on um, comes from uh, uh also that process of finding that information I, I came across the jerry lawler song uh wimp busters which was actually sung to jimmy hart or about jimmy hart uh to the tune of Ghostbusters. and apparently uh, during a feud when um i guess apparently i guess at first uh, jimmy was kind of Jerry's kind of with Jerry on Jerry's side but then they kind of turn on each other and the process Jerry starts calling Jimmy Hart a wimp and I'm sure Greg will talk more about this but that leads to I ain't afraid of no wimps so <laughs> go uh, go find that YouTube video and get a good laugh um, with Jerry Lawler singing Wimp Busters um, that eventually uh uh, Jimmy goes to the WWF where he manages a ton of uh, great heels and heel teams including Greg Valentine, Brutus Beefcake, eventually those two together called the Dream Team, King Kong Bundy, The Missing Link, Adrian Adonis, The Funk Family, Heart Foundation. Um, what a lot of people associate him with is the Honky Tonk Man where he's referred to as the Colonel which is a call out to, the, to Elvis's uh, idea for the Honky Tonk Man and then the Colonel as his manager. The Fabulous Rougeau Brothers, Dino Bravo, Earthquake, Earthquake and um, 
uh, a typhoon as the natural disasters, the Nasty Boys, Money Incorporated, and the Mountie. All, all uh, he managed all of those characters in his time in the WWF, and certainly all are heels um, throughout that time. Uh, eventually, he does get an opportunity to be a face manager, and how that happens is in a, in a feud between Beefcake and Hogan. Um, Jimmy ends up siding on Hogan's side and feels sorry, I uh, think, and this is kind of the idea behind it, and um, becomes uh, Hogan's manager, uh, I believe, is uh, and, follow, and even so much so that he becomes associated with Hogan. He follows Hogan into the WCW, um, where he be, is Hogan's manager for the for Hogan's first big title reign in WCW. Uh, while in WCW, also manages the Giant, uh, the Dungeon of Doom. Ric Flair creates the new First Family. Uh, becomes the lead writer of WCW Saturday Night. Um, eventually goes into uh, TNA where he uh, manages the Naturals and the Nasty Boys again uh, while in TNA. Another big contribution to the business is his writing uh, music, uh, which goes back obviously to his original talents and uh, way back in the, uh, the Gentry's days. And He uh, writes some of the most iconic theme songs in wrestling and some that are attributed to him are Shawn Michaels' theme song, Sexy Boy, uh, Dusty Rhodes' Common Man Boogie, uh, Ted DiBiase's theme song, The Rockers' theme song, Heart Foundation's theme song, and of course the Honky Tonk Man's theme song. But uh, the one that kind of caught me off guard the most was when I learned that he was uh, the he wrote the Wolfpack's theme song in WCW. Um, so some huge songs uh, that we all think of when we think of great wrestling entrance songs. Uh, that are attributed to, to Jimmy Hart and um, his talents in the business. So just a huge contribution to wrestling. And I'm going to let Greg uh, move forward here and kind of give us a little bit more insight on uh, on Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart's my favorite wrestler, manager, um, and, and the first one that I remember. Let, let me say this. Jimmy Hart has got to be the best-looking 77-year-old man there is. He looks fabulous. I mean, if you've seen him, I mean, he doesn't look like he's aged very much at all um and i do believe that he is currently um under currently signed with the wwe in a legends deal and uh i didn't know about all those uh um songs and and recordings i mean he's just an incredible guy and and, and had a great contribution if you just saw jimmy in the wwf or wwe you really didn't see the greatness of jimmy hart he had the megaphone, and he had and and Rick gave. He had a great stable of wrestlers that he managed, but he didn't have to carry anything so much because they had. I mean, you think about the wrestler, the wrestling managers that they had in the WWF in the mid '80s. You've got what do you got? Heenan, Mr. Fuji, Slick. Um, you got Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you've got some great it's managers. Classy Freddie Blassie still there. Blassie May still been around. Mm-hmm. Lou Albano is still Lou around a little yeah. bit. So you had an incredible, a plethora, if you will, of incredible managers yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy in Memphis, as Rick said, he knew Jerry Lawler from Treadwell High School in Memphis, worked on some records for him. And somewhere around 1978, he starts showing up as a gum chewing. He would literally chew gum in the interviews and hold Jerry Lawler's belts. He didn't say hardly a word. And uh, this would remain the same. He was just kind of like, you know, he'd be at ringside. and But that would kind of be the, the way it was until February of 1980. Jerry Lawler breaks his leg playing a game of football with friends at his house. I think on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. 
Jerry Jarrett, the owner of the territory, is furious because he's built this whole thing around Lawler. Lawler is the main attraction. His main guy now is out for months. What Jimmy Hart did to keep that area and that territory going is really great. He immediately shows up. Again, he's never talked much. And he utters sometime there and right after that the famous words to Lance Russell. Lance, if you have a prize racehorse and he breaks his leg, what do you do with him? You shoot him. You shoot him, baby. And so he said, baby, I'm going to shoot. I'm done with Jerry Lawler. He can't make me any more money. And he promptly handed the crown over to a guy who was a really good-looking guy, muscle-bound guy named Paul Ellering who was a wrestler and would later on become a manager. But So he started, he said, I'm starting the first family of professional wrestling. He never said wrestling. First, first family of professional wrestling, baby. And um, they really helped carry things until, so, until Lawler comes back. When Lawler comes back in early 81, they built this thing up, man. Because now it's tremendously big because they're best friends. He's turned on them in his time of need. And so they... They take that from 81 right up until about 1985, I believe, is when Jimmy left to go to New York to work for Vince and the WWF. They just had, they had a great, it, just a feud that lasted for years. And they built the whole, a lot of the whole TV program, everything is built around the different guys that Jimmy brings in and manages trying to end Jerry Lawler's career. Andy Kaufman, that crisscrosses, as you mentioned, Rick. And... Uh, Man, if you want to see some really good work, Jimmy's at his finest probably from oh, about the eight, 1980 to about 1984 in Memphis. I mean, he is just his ha 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 laughing and obnoxious self, getting heat. And you talk about a guy who took bumps. He's had his clothes torn off. He's been burnt with fire. He's had his leg broke. Um, he had to wear it. Uh, he lost something, and he had to wear the San Diego chicken outfit for a week. Yeah, yeah probably had to eat dog food. Everything, yeah. everything. Brutus cut his hair at WrestleMania. Yeah, this is just in Memphis, and then he gets his hair cut by Brutus and and all kinds of stuff. So, Jimmy is uh, J- J- Jimmy's quite quite a remarkable guy. But I don't think you got to see him. If he had to, if he had to carry. If he had to carry the ball as the main guy, he could do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do find that you know, so many managers have something that iconic that goes with them. The megaphone. If you see a megaphone. If anybody took a megaphone to the ring now, they, oh, oh, you're just doing what Jimmy Hart did. Yeah. If they took a phone, they'd say it was Paul, uh, Heyman. Paul Heyman. If they took um, uh, an urn, tennis, urn. Racket. <laughs> a tennis racket, they'd be uh, Jim Cornette. If they took a, which, that one never made all that much sense to me. I'd have to do some research onto why that was a tennis Probably the rich family. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, the tennis rich country club fancy guy. country yeah. club. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. That makes more sense yeah. now. Yeah. The urn for uh, when you associate with, uh, with Paul Bear. Um, so it is interesting that so many of them you know, toted something to the ring, and that megaphone just became part of oh. the gimmick. Oh, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's iconic, uh, the megaphone is. So um, I was just excited. I, I, I'm not, I was excited that Kevin couldn't come. No, I was excited that I got to do a little research on Jimmy Hart because it did give me a completely different kind of thought about it because I, you know, like I said, I associated him with Hogan and that just, you know, is, that's not really the the contribution he made to the business is so much bigger. Oh yeah. Um, and it was really, it was really fun to, to see. I'm, um, 
I did watch him on that show with the with the legends, legends and uh, the with Legends House, and um, he was somewhat annoying on there. Oh, yeah. uh, so That's that so that character the character he plays isn't probably very far from his true life uh, true life ways, which is usually what makes him the most. Um, he does a good interview with um, JBL on the network Legends with JBL. Oh yeah, with Jimmy Hart. I think it was the last one they filmed. I think that's the very last one. Legends with Jimmy Hart. I think it was Jimmy Hart was the very last with one. With JBLs? Uh-huh. Yeah, because it was good to learn more. Like you said, I learned more about his music. I didn't know he did music before. Very he was successful. was in the wrestling. Yeah, yeah very successful. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to shout out some other names from the past. Great wrestling managers. Uh, some of them have left us and uh, passed away. Just want to give a shout out to General Skandor Akbar. Uh, Colonel Parker, a.k.a. Robert Fuller, Tojo Yamamoto, Freddie Blassie, Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard, Slick, the Reverend of Style, of course, <laughs> Mr. Fuji, uh, Brother Love, as we've mentioned, James J. Dillon, uh, Behind the Four Horsemen and many other great things, Jim Cornette, Precious Paul Ellering, Paul Jones, Kevin Sullivan, Teddy Long, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. There's scores of women managers and somewhat controversial whether they're valets. That is a debate for another day. We did want to throw sensational Sherry, though I think we all were in agreement she was a manager. Yeah. And one that I wanted to put in there that I thought could have been great, and I don't know what happened to him, don't know much about him, but a guy named James Mitchell who looked like a re- weird, eerie uh, circus manager that managed the abyss. I thought he could have been really great. I don't know what happened to him. If you do... Contact us and let us know. I'd like to know know. what's happening to James Mitchell. Harvey Whippleman. Harvey Whippleman, a.k.a. Downtown Bruno. Oh, I didn't know that. Downtown Bruno in Memphis. So there's others, and we're probably missing some. We want to shout out to all the. Well, thank you, Greg, and I'm sure our listeners out there are thinking about their favorite manager. And, and if we didn't talk about them and you want to send us your comments, please get on Facebook and Twitter at King of the Cast. Also vote in our polls to help crown our next King of the Cast. And I'd just like to remind our listeners out there to be washing your hands and coughing into your elbows and uh, staying home if you are sick. But thanks for listening to Episode 3 of King of the Cast, and we'll see you next time.